0: Dr. R. J. Rushdoony, RR 161B and 122, Christians in Politics in Washington, D. C. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects.
1: This is R. J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 242, April 17, 1991. Otto Scott, John Lofton, and I are now going to discuss a subject which may sound uh, like an oxymoron (laughs) or like a radical contradiction in terms, Christians and politics in Washington. Now... A great many things can be said on the subject. I recall vividly in the late 50s one Washington commentator who said superficially the most religious city in the United States was Washington, D.C. Everybody went to church. Mm -hmm. Who was anybody. But he said there is not a thimble full of real Christianity in all of Washington, D.C., It's all a show for the public. Well, of course, at that time, it was still important to maintain appearances. These were the years of Eisenhower. Since then, it has not become that important to maintain appearances, although one book recently maintained that... uh, However, uh, intellectually lacking and spiritually ignorant the average American may be, he wants his politicians to be good Christians. And he attributed uh, the defeat of Dukakis essentially to that point. He was the first man who gave a consistently secular image. And uh, both he and his wife communicated a secular image, whereas Bush, and especially Mrs. Bush, carried the old-time appeal, and she was like a motherly or grandmotherly woman who could be taken for a Sunday school teacher or something of the sort. So as I was telling John today, I think uh, perhaps the winning margin in uh, Bush's favor may have been the fact that even though people thought he was a wimp, Mrs. Bush was appealing to millions of Americans. So, at any rate... With that very general and not very important introduction, what would you like to say, Otto, on Christians and politics in Washington?
0: Well, I think not too long ago, I think when I was working on a manuscript you and I were both interested in, I looked up the polytheistic nature of the Roman state and in the Roman state, all the gods were recognized so long as the believers of these particular, worshippers of these particular gods recognized the state over everything. Mm-hmm. Now that's our, that's our situation. We're living in a polytheistic society where anybody who wants to pick up a religion from the street and call it a religion can do so. We have the Satanists for instance, mm-hmm. are registered in our government as yes. equal with any church in the land. So, therefore, when we talk about Christianity in and, and Washington, I think of these prayer breakfasts and just before they uh, mm-hmm. stick a knife in your back and give you an autopsy, you know, mm-hmm. on Monday morning. And I think that most c- people in this country are still living in the fantasy Yes. We don't really have a Christian government.
1: No, and I think Barbara Bush is beginning to wake up some people with her pro-abortion stand, which was not made clear before the election, and her strongly pro-gay stand, which again was not made clear before the election.
0: I can't understand women who like men who don't like women. Yes. Uh,
1: There's something... (laughs) weird to say the least about that. You mentioned Rome. Now, uh, a very, very uh, wise and able historian under whom I studied a good many years ago spoke of Rome's uh, careful control of all religions. Any new religion that came into the empire was viewed with suspicion And then when they finally felt it would be wise, it was licensed. You could hold no meeting without having a permit from the Roman officials. And you had to offer incense at a government center to Caesar. So you acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, literally. And, of course, Christianity refused to do that. But Rome was at least, however evil, wise in that it did see the necessity of religion to hold an empire together. It They had to have social cement. Politics could not provide that. It had to be the religions, and therefore the religions were the most controlled aspect of the Roman Empire. There could be no unofficial meetings, only licensed meetings, and that's why the church was persecuted, because they would not apply for a permit and
0: be controlled and admit Caesar as Lord. Well, we've had the same problem. Street preachers have been arrested and put yes. in prison, as under Charles the Second. We have church groups that have been told not to hold a meeting because they violate the zoning ordinances. Mm -hmm. We are not in as good a position as many of the religions under the Romans, but there's a great difference. The Christians under the Romans wouldn't admit Caesar was Lord, but the Christians under the United States government will agree that the government is Lord. Yes. And Rome,
1: even though it totally controlled and I mean totally controlled all religions knew that religion was valuable and
0: our federal government and our state governments refused to admit that fact well they think it's trivial it's stupid it's backward it's unscientific and it's intolerant yes well John amen to all of that I agree it- At your uh, suggestion,
2: Rush, one of the books uh, I looked at, I have read large parts of it, uh, not all of it, some of it's very heavy going, quite frankly, for me anyway, uh, is Charles Norris Cochran's book, uh, Christianity and Classical (laughs) Culture. One of the great books of the century. I think it's Oxford University, what, in the mid-1940s, I believe, or early 40s. Early early. 40s. And one of the points that Cochrane makes is that uh, Christians in the Greco-Roman era denounced, uh, Cochran says, with uniform vigor and consistency the idea that permanent security, peace, and freedom could be achieved through political action. Now, what really made those words jump off the page at me is that is exactly the way Christians in Washington DC think and behave. They believe that permanent security peace and freedom can be achieved through political action they yeah. they do not uh they do not uh, think with minds that are christians uh with christian they do not use scripture they there is a christian establishment in washington and it's become just another interest group oh sure they pray at their meetings and they have a <laughs> veneer of morality and they may have one or two issues that they're a little stronger on than some other groups but basically they're just another special interest group. Now let me give you one example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, Robert Dugan is uh, a, a top official in the National Association of Evangelicals in Washington. He's been there many years. Uh, he's a member of the Christian establishment I would say. He's written a new book about how to uh, how to uh, engage in politics uh, as a Christian. And he says this, My evangelical brothers and sisters occasionally cause heartburn, sometimes by their use of the Bible in the political arena. Too often I've watched a Christian wave his Bible in the air at a committee hearing. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen such a thing. Uh, by the way, mm-hmm. I've never never seen anyone in Washington at any hearing waving a Bible, of all things. But uh, maybe Bob has. And, and then uh, he quotes uh, the theologian attorney John Warwick Montgomery, he quotes him approvingly, as saying this, Believers should strive to legislate all those socially valuable moral teachings of Scripture whose value can be meaningfully argued for in a pluralistic society. <laughs> he says that evangelicals must not engage in Christian crusades, that's put into quote marks, uh, implying that it's Christians versus pagans, but should offer arguments on scientific, social, and ethical grounds potentially meaningful to the non-Christian. Unquote. Now, that, of course...
1: Typical of Montgomery. He sells out the biblical
2: position. So much for the early church. I mean, we are in a battle with... uh, We are in a crusade. We are against pagans, but we can't use any of this language, and we certainly can't use the Bible. We have to be scientific, And that is exactly the way Christians have behaved in Washington for, uh, what, over a decade now since the so-called Christian right began and their utter failures.
0: Maybe we should ask, in an organized way, for the elimination of all labels, for uh, no Jew to be allowed to say that he's Jewish for no Mormon to say that he's a Mormon and for so forth and so on and just see what happens. Mm -hmm. if We accuse them of carrying their ethnicity or their religion into the public arena where it doesn't belong and just see what happens.
1: I encountered a Christian lobbyist of considerable power and funds who was instantly hostile. I hadn't opened my mouth. Uh, the position was that I was one of these people who went all out for the faith and made it impossible for anyone to work in the political arena. In other words, the thesis was, unless you began as a compromiser and you were ready to be a nice boy or a nice girl and go along with the politicians, they weren't going to do you a favor. The moral ground, the theological ground, meant nothing. It was simply a political game. And uh, I was instantaneously disliked before I opened my mouth because I was obviously one of these people who stood on principle. And that was said with contempt.
2: Well, it's really pathetic what uh, some of the Christians uh, in Washington, members of this Christian establishment, consider to be victories in his uh, book, uh, Bob Dugan on page 137 uh, under a heading, A String of Victories for the Evangelicals. The first one is that they got the appointment of Dr. C. Everett Koop, As Surgeon General, uh, I know. He was well named, that fellow. (laughs) One of the greatest disasters of any Christian named to any post. And the second achievement, presumably these are in the order of importance, was that in 1983, uh, the President signed into law the Year of the Bible. These are, this is the list of a string of victories.
0: That's a landmark, yes. Isn't it?
2: You remember that, Otto. Oh, sure. What a year, 1983.
0: Well, you of the Bible. which you can't wait for the people. Well, actually, <laughs> yes, that's right. other groups are treated with a certain amount of respect in Washington, at least public respect. But Christians are treated with signal disrespect. Now, I've never quite understood how the educators in this country got the idea, probably from the court, <laughs> that Christianity is outlawed in the schools. Oh, yes, that's Or how the court has managed to do this without any of the justices being strung up. (laughs) Uh, uh, Turn the other cheek seems to have been taken too much to heart by the American Christian community. uh,
1: And not in a biblical sense, but in the sense of an excuse for cowardice. That's the way it's interpreted. It's a vindication of cowardice.
2: Well, the thing that interests me uh, about uh, Mr. Dugan's book is that uh, several years ago I attended a uh, panel discussion in Washington titled Religion, Politics, and the Media, and there was a film clip uh, shown of uh, Tim LaHaye of uh, Family Life Seminars. Uh, His wife, Beverly, is uh, head of the Concerned Women uh, for America or of America. And in this uh, film, Tim was saying that uh, secular humanists should not hold public office in America because the Constitution is not compatible with such a view. He, Tim felt that we should give candidates for public office uh, a questionnaire, that we should ask them questions uh, about their beliefs about God and the Bible. And uh, when Bob Dugan was called upon to comment on the film clip, uh, Dugan denounced uh, Tim LaHaye, saying that these questions are embarrassing and not part of the mainstream of evangelical uh, Christianity. Uh, Dugan said, we at the NAE uh, encourage people not to ask these kinds of questions uh, of candidates for public office. So we've got this peculiar situation where Christians' religion is totally irrelevant, and it's okay to ask a candidate about his position on
0: everything except uh, God and the Bible and uh, Christ. It's very peculiar. Or even on Christianity as such. I mean, if a non-Christian candidate for high office is being interviewed, I would think it would be very relevant to ask him his attitude toward the Christian community and Christian rights. One of the things that really annoys me about uh, most of the press comments on Saturday today, you know, they have a little ghetto page where they say a few things about Christian Christian activities. You never know the affiliations of the fellow who's doing the reporting. And one of the first rules when I was a reporter, my one of my first rules was, who says?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who is he? What's his background? And I've often thought it would be very nice if we could insist that those who make religious comments about religious groups Put in their own background. Yes. So we know Yes. who is saying this, about whom. Well, it's most peculiar what when when I'm talking
2: about because in Washington, D.C., it's certainly uh, not only acceptable, but some would say mandatory. That if you were a person who was Jewish and you, there was a candidate for public office, you would ask them at some point, uh, what is your position on aid to Israel? Yes. That wouldn't be looked upon as some insane effort to launch a crusade or impose no. your faith on someone. Indeed, no. there are very powerful organizations there that that's the only issue they ever talk about.
0: Or what is your, what is your position on a number of other matters? Oh, yeah. <laughs> some of them quite, uh, some and groups quite say, On yeah. matters that are very important to very large groups of people. Yeah, like what say four out of
1: five. on South Africa?
0: Uh, well, oh, on apartheid, sure. That's yeah, These are big litmus well, tests. We know the position on apartheid, but what, <laughs> what about the government of South Africa? Do we really consider it the font of all evil?
1: Yes, that's what I meant.
0: Basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well,
2: certain litmus tests, uh, as I say, are not only fine and acceptable, uh, they're mandatory, whereas if any Christian has the temerity to in, even obliquely uh, raise the what I call the G word uh, about God, uh, then they're shouted down or uh, considered some kind of horrible bigot.
0: Well, Robert S. Lichter and his associates have a uh, research outfit, as you know, in Washington. And they've recently done a study that was commissioned by the Catholic Church about the treatment of the Catholic Church by the media. Well, of course, we know the conclusion. We know that the media has been wiping its feet on the Catholic Church for a long time, for a generation at least. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised that the Church even spends money to see that this uh, uh, has to be proven. And Lichter said something rather interesting. He said, In examining the press reports and the television reports on the activities of the Catholics, they came to the conclusion that they were not reports because they, they lacked a great deal in terms of valid statistics and precise detail. Mm-hmm. He said they're actually stories. Mm-hmm. Stories about the church, stories about people in the church, and stories about arguments in the church, and almost all of them portrayed the church as obsolete, medieval, intolerant, out of touch, mm-hmm. and so forth. Well, of course... Evangelicals have been treated as uh, unwashed. The Jukes family, uh, yes. the Jukes family on stage. And, of course, we, we're well aware that Reconstructionists are, are allied with Lucifer. The Calicax. Yes, Calicax. I'm yes. sorry, I, I didn't think of that myself. That's a great... The Jukes and the Calicax. Jukes and the Calicax. Yeah, now, this this goes on, but if you bring up some other issues that involve some other groups, the letters to the editor go on for weeks.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You try to find a live nerve in the Christian community, and you can't. You can stick the needle no matter how deep you like, and there's not even a twitch. Well, see, that's the sense. I mean, I, I
2: think it's awful that the media portrays the Catholic Church and the light it does and uh, evangelicals, but... Those There's people, no
0: reaction.
2: They've they asked for it. They, 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 they frustrated do. themselves and said, use me as a doormat. Uh, the, the Catholic Church will use money to pay for the study to uh, periodically tally the number of wounds it suffered, but it has no strategy to combat it. Look at that. I mentioned Cardinal O'Connor. I mean, uh, he, he originally got very angry that homosexuals were marching in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. He originally had a very hard-line, courageous position. But then he uh, agrees to meet with Mayor Dinkins, uh, and they come out uh, shaking hands. And the story and the editorials are all that O'Connor has uh, has uh, been uh, suing for peace with Dinkins. Dinkins Dinkins didn't even Dinkins mar- n- marched with the homosexuals in the parade. Said, "Well, I won't leave the Saint Patrick's Day parade. I will go march with the homosexual contingent." He didn't just march in a parade with them. He said, if you're going to try to kick them out then I'll, and and they come anyway, I will march with them. So to, if, if homosexuals are, what, say, 2% or less of the population of this country, they have more clout than Christians who are 4 out of 5 adults
0: in this country. It's amazing and depressing.
2: Well,
0: the parties, the two major parties, select the nominees. No other nominees appear on the ballot so that you have your choice between whichever one of two men selected by the oligarchy. The men who control the nomination process are way in the background. You don't see them, you don't hear them, you're not invited to their conclaves. This is, this is what the vote means. We've been telling the rest of the world that once they get the vote, everything will be wonderful. <laughs>
1: but Nevada, I understand, now has it. An alternative. You can check the last item on each slate on the ballot and it reads, none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be another uh, election if uh, none of the above wins. I think we need that in every state.
0: That was John Randolph's suggestion. Mm-hmm. He said if nobody voted, the term of office would expire and the government would collapse. <laughs> I was I was looking for the
2: copy of the page out of uh, Robert Dugan's uh, book because one of the uh, points he made was that, well, uh, you know, it was once said there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the parties, but there really is because the Republican Party uh, cares more about the moral issues uh, than the Democratic Party. I, I, I don't know when Bob's book was written, but... Uh, uh, obviously, it was before Bush uh, became the first president in our history to invite two White House bill-signing ceremonies, open-avowed homosexual individuals and homosexual uh, represent- uh, representatives of homosexual lobbying groups in Washington. Bush invited them to bill-signing ceremonies, and uh, Dugan and uh, a number of other Christians uh, requested a meeting with Bush to complain about this, and Dugan... Uh, had drafted a, an, an executive order that he wanted the president to sign, and of course the president's done nothing about it and won't. Uh, I remember seeing Dugan at the microphone talking to the press about how, how we're going to uh, really put uh, the heat on uh, the president over this, and I thought, Mr. Dugan doesn't understand. The president doesn't care what you think. Uh, you're not going to put any heat on him. Uh, if he cared what you thought, there would have never been homosexuals at a White House. Well, he fired Douglas Weed. Douglas, of
1: course, Douglas for protesting
2: that very event. Doug Weed wrote letters. That's right. There is no group in Washington D.C. that is less feared than Christians.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because the Democratic Party, more than the Republican Party, has pulled on what used to be known as time-honored religious issues: compassion for the poor the sick, the needy, the homeless, which at one time was the province of the church. They have pulled on the the idea of uh, kindness toward minorities, the idea that you should help the people who are deprived and so forth and so on. And these instruments of the church have been seized by the politicians, by the lawyers, by the courts, yes. and they've been used against the church. Mm-hmm. Now, Christianity, as you know, is the most Catholic of all religions. Yes. You don't have to be from any family, you don't have to be from any place, you don't have to be from any background, you cannot have to be of any race to be a Christian. And yet they've actually called Christianity intolerant because they hold churches... I heard Jerry Falwell answer that question uh, one time on CNN. I thought he did well. They said, well, don't you get up and preach that yours is the only truth? And he said, yes, and so do the leaders of every other church. What would you prefer that we say? And what do the politicians do but proclaim that theirs is the only truth? Of course. But, you see, all the... There, there, they have floated heresies out. Mm-hmm. There is actually a feeling now in the Christian community. I I remember listening to Billy Graham once, and at the end of his whole thing, he said, stand up and embrace somebody of another race. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why another race? What's that got to do with the price of fish? Well, I I must take my hat off to you
1: for your very great spirit of tolerance listening
0: to Billy Graham. That takes... Oh, I read the New York Times. I do all kinds of things.
1: (laughs) That would sour my disposition permanently to listen to Billy Graham
0: and read the New York Times. Graham was a very interesting speaker. He is. He is an excellent speaker, and he breaks it up. He breaks up his themes. He doesn't stay with a particular point very long. Then he breaks it up with an anecdote or a, a mild joke, whatever. He shifts. He's very skillful. He's a skillful operator. Very skillful. And it's impossible at the end to say what he said. Mm-hmm. But you do have a good feeling. The warm fuzzies. Yes. yes, the yes which last at least 30 seconds. Oh yes. Well I do know, I do know a man who was converted at a Billy Graham gathering, but his conversion never seemed to proceed beyond that point. There's no difference in his life before or after that conversion. You know, the, the problem with this uh, advice that Christians should ...put away the
2: Bible and the idea that uh, they're on some kind of a crusade... ...is that it causes them to sheath the sword. Yeah. The, the, the scripture tells us that the, that the uh, sword of truth is God's word. And so Christians get intimidated and they come to Washington... ...and they don't really preach God's word. When they get an hour with the President of the United States... ...they don't tell the President of the United States... ...who claims to be a Christian what God requires of him. They talk about their own, uh, you know, getting Bible week passed or uh, something that's just a a basic political agenda. One of the things that strikes me when I read the Bible is that when Christians uh, and believers in the Old Testament got before uh, someone in the government, the king or the prince, they told them, often at great peril to their lives, what God required them to do and their government. I've been reading. I've been reading some uh, Scottish Puritan sermons and English Puritan sermons of of Christians that got before their government, their their Parliament, and uh, uh, they they not only waved the Bible, they waved it for three or four hours. I mean, they were marvelous, detailed sermons about what the civil government had to do, and that is totally lost in Washington. I don't know anyone who preaches to the Parliament or to the head of uh, the executive branch about what God requires him to do some way we have to restore that tradition in this country
1: yes I you know, one of my earlier books I don't remember where quoted a writer from the last century who began to see the drift of things Emery Starrs and he said when hell goes out of preaching justice goes out of of civil government.
0: Well, of course, the biggest biblical point is the limitation of earthly power. Yes. Amen. That governments should not undertake the role of God. Mm -hmm. And this is where our government is in particular sin because the whole welfare state is an attempt to play God and to tell us now how we can speak about one another who we can associate with, all the way down
1: the line. We're talking about things that the Puritan preachers preached about all the time. Everywhere. And almost no one preaches about them nowadays. I like the story. I told you both about it, but... I think it's worth repeating here, and I may have used it on a previous Easy Chair, but it's worth repeating again and again. Oh, don't do it Good. again and again. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Christopher Hill's story at the end of his book on uh, the Puritans in the 17th century in which uh, he cites the case of the uh, Scottish Calvinist preacher of a few generations ago, whose congregation became a little restless with his mention of judgment and of hell. And so he spoke about it the next Sunday. And he told them a story. He said, this man died and he went to hell. And he looked up to heaven and he shouted to God, I dinna ken, I dinna ken, or I didn't know. And God looked down and said, Well, knew you can, now you know. (laughs) There are too many people today who are going to wind up in hell with the preachers and can say to them, I did not know from your preaching. Well, I tell you, we, uh, and I hope I'm not violating any confidence
2: confidences here. I don't think I am. We have a president who is badly in need of uh, uh, Christian instruction. Uh, I've known George Bush since 1970. Uh, 1973, when he became chairman of the Republican National Committee, I worked there under him as the editor of the Republican Party's uh, national weekly uh, newspaper called uh, Monday at the time, and I I knew him. And uh, during the eight years that he was vice president, I had... uh, three so-called social call meetings with him, which are off the record, they're not for publication, and I spent that time uh, talking to him about the faith and about government and how it applied. And uh, I I suspect, like uh, most mainline Episcopalians, maybe most mainline Protestants, George Bush has no idea at all what, what God has to do with government, what the Scripture has to do with civil government, I mean, he heard me out. He's a very personally pleasant man. But it was just uh, like I was a man from Morris speaking a foreign language. He had no idea. And, and I'm sure that most of our uh, Christian congressmen and senators,
0: likewise, are, are totally ignorant of the connection between God and government. That's a very interesting and pertinent point. Uh, I was always considered myself a well-read person, I have mean, been steeped in books all my life and I converted very late in my early 50s and it wasn't until afterwards that I began to get some dim understanding of the fact that there is a subject called theology now I remember discussing this with a friend of mine who was about my age maybe a little older and he said that for most of his life he'd gone around with the theological ideas of a 14-year-old boy. He said he was 14 years old when he decided that the church was a bunch of nonsense and he walked out of it. And he said it wasn't until he was in his 50s that uh, he, began, he went back to the church and he began to listen and he began to read for the first time. And then he realized that most of his life he'd had the, the ideas of a 14-year-old. Now, I think this is true of millions upon millions yes. of Americans. They never even look into the subject. Mm-hmm. They take it for granted that it's a bunch of garbage, that it's superstition, it's old wives' tales, or whatever, and they have no idea that it was once known as the queen of the sciences. Mm-hmm. And that it is still a towering structure of intellect. Yes. Well, let, let me, let me.
2: What I remember vividly about, uh, Mr. Bush's uh, reaction was that uh, he would—he was so steeped in the uh, pluralistic uh, model and the democratic model that the—that when I would touch on a matter which uh, implied any kind of exclusivity or uniqueness, his head would just shake like I do not believe that we—we uh, we are a nation of many views and many faiths. Uh, I cannot say that. I cannot say that in mixed groups.
0: I just do not believe that. It's—it's it's anti. Well, she should make. He should spend six months in Jerusalem. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He should go live in a theocracy. Yes, well, that's... he should go to Tehran. Well,
1: a few years back, we put out an issue of the journal on Christianity and business, and one of the very fine and supporters of Chalcedon, Dan Maxwell, said since he had contact with a number of wealthy uh, businessmen, manufacturers, corporate heads who were professing Bible-believing Christians, he would approach them on the subject of doing an article on Christianity and their realm of business and its application. And he was stunned by the uniform reaction he had because they would listen to him and then sit back in shock and say, what the age does Christianity have to do with my business? Then there was a celebrated case three, four years ago of the woman in a southern state who was a member of a large congregation and she was committing adultery with the mayor of that community. And it was flagrant, it was known. She never denied it. And she was excommunicated by the church for her adultery, and she sued them and won 400000 And her statement was, what does the church have to do with my sex life? In other words, the church and Christianity
0: is reduced to one thing, Getting to heaven. Well, that is an interesting case to bring up because it was Calvin's first victory. The council in Geneva, which ran Geneva, said that Calvin had no right to excommunicate excommunicate people from the church, and they sent the excommunicates back to the service. And Calvin said, in that case, I have to leave the city. And it was the second or third time that the issue came up. And on this particular occasion, he had built himself enough of a following so that they didn't want to see him leave. So they backed down. And he called it, the writer I read, and I can't think of his name off hand, called it Protecting the Altar. Yes. Protecting the altar, and he said it was the first great victory of the Protestant movement that the church had drawn a line that the state could not enter. That was Mm. the beginning of the freedom of religion from the state for the first time in the history of Christianity. It
1: wasn't a victory won by words alone. They sicked their dogs on Calvin in the streets. Oh, yes. They went under his window and shot guns at night to
0: give him no rest because he had defied them. Well, it was a great victory. And that defeat, the Church's defeat in an American court, was because of the ignorance yes. of the Christian community there and the ignorance of the judge yes, and the ignorance of the jury. If you don't have the right to have a church and to select the members of the church, and you don't have a right to have a social club and select the members of the social club, you don't have the right to have a corporation and select the people who are going to work in it, what rights do you have? Well, the
2: the Christians in Washington, the members of this uh, so-called Christian establishment, and believe me, there is a Christian establishment in Washington, they're, they're just sleepwalking. There, there was a fellow who wrote an article not long ago in the policy review. He was one of Pat Robertson's uh, uh, advisors during the campaign. That's what advisors in failed campaigns do. They go write articles advising everyone else how to behave.
0: It's well, an interesting career. You know, it's an inter- interesting career. I, <laughs> I I helped sink that balloon, you know, so now I'm a balloon expert. <laughs> but
2: th- But this fellow wrote an article saying that the problem of the re- religious right had been that it was too pushy, it was too Christian, it was too much on a crusade. And this, I mean, this was an amazing article written by a, a, a man who was in Pat Robertson's presidential campaign, uh, when, uh, particularly when Pat Robertson couldn't secular, secularize his campaign fast enough. I mean, he resigned his ordination, he... uh he all but denied that he was a Christian. Whenever the subject came up about him being a minister, he wanted to change the subject and talk about being a lawyer from Yale or that he
1: once, you know, lifted blocks
0: or something, anything. He said he was a businessman, I a never way. knew any businessman that got contributions.
1: And he also Legally. said that he was going to be equally the president of the homosexuals and the Christians.
0: Oh,
2: absolutely. When he was once uh, asked about uh, his religious views and uh, if he, what would happen if he were elected, he said, well, the presidency is a secular office. That was his word. And, of course, my religious views are private and, uh, and never the twain would meet. Well, when Kennedy said it, we believed it and he proved it. Well, of course, Kennedy was a man whose religion was so private he didn't even impose it on himself. <laughs>
1: Very few presidents
2: have in this century. Yes. Well, we've got to revive somehow this tradition of getting God's word before government officials. Uh, I, I naturally am concerned with Washington because I live uh, close
0: to there, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bunch of people that are badly in need of tutoring. Well, I uh, think part of the problem is the language, John. It's possible to bring the word without bringing the same language. I mean, on the question of the right of the church, for instance, to have its own congregation, my feeling is that the attorneys involved in that particular issue didn't present the case properly, because if they had, the woman would not have won the case. I
1: think I know something about that case and the attorneys, and they had excellent attorneys. And I know one of the attorneys in another case was told if he brought up the issue of the First Amendment once again, he would be in contempt of court and be removed by the bailiff to jail.
0: Then it was the court.
1: The courts now are evil by and large. What goes on in the courts is outrageous. Well,
2: what I'm talking about is the necessity uh, as it's sometimes uh, put of the Christian to speak God's truth to power which is the prophetic function. I I recently got a huge book. It was almost six inches thick. I think it's published by Liberty Liberty Press. Uh, It's all election sermons in the founding era starting after 1776.
1: I was Ama- about to mention them.
2: Amazing sermons. I mean, there may be 30 of them, long sermons.
1: Uh, I wasn't aware uh, of that book, so if you'll send about, me the title, I'd appreciate absolutely. it.
2: Absolutely. And they're all about uh, the role of God in the Bible and civil government, and they are long, long sermons.
1: Every church would have an election sermon on the Sunday before an election in which they laid down the basic moral issues involved in
0: terms of Scripture. That's now against the law. Well, that's uh, right. That's now against the law, and when I said, there, to a certain extent, it's a question of language, uh, in recent generations have been using the language of previous generations on religious topics. Other generations in the past used their own idiom. Yes. Yeah. And the Christian community has not tied its language into everyday life. Yeah. And that is one of the reasons why it loses, because it brings up antique terms mm-hmm. as far as the average person is concerned. Yeah. You have to be much more relevant. You have to be with it if you're going to convince the man. As
1: you said when you got converted and started going to church... It was as though you'd stepped back into the 17th century. See, that's <laughs> the
0: way I felt. I felt I was in a museum of some sort. Mm-hmm. They were giving me the same formulations, the same language that my great-grandfather listened to. And certainly, uh, I think that uh, Dorothy mentioned Marion Montgomery's comment that to t- tell young kids or school kids or college kids that you could become president is diabolic Mm -hmm. and he also said something else which is very interesting he said that the misuse of a word is a sin Mm -hmm. it is bearing false witness to use the wrong definition for a word and we see this being done all the time compassion is, yes. is used all the time. Where is the compassion to put somebody as a slave of the government? Yes, with a whole bunch of people coming in and inspecting them, giving them forms to fill and so forth, and calling it welfare. That's not welfare.
1: Compassion has to do with a person's feelings and what he does for another
0: person. Directly, person to person. Exactly. I remember years ago, I heard a fellow, he had a terrible story, many problems, and I, I had a pain in my chest. And I said to the guy next to me, if Something's wrong, I've got a pain in my chest. He said, That's compassion, you idiot.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't recognize it.
2: I was say, the pain grabs me a little lower sometimes. Talking about the laws, limitations, and what's legal and illegal in this uh, book that I've been talking about, Robert Dugan's, a new book uh, uh, about Christians and politics. He says this on page 27. The more I experience total political freedom as a citizen of the United States, the more I agree with Winston Churchill's incisive comment. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been dragged. We haven't got it. That's a very... Uh, now, no, we don't. Now, on page 48, sometimes I think these books are a group effort, uh, the authors having never met each other except maybe on the final galley. On page 48, Dugan writes this about churches and the activities that they can engage in in this total political freedom, I think was the re- Educational materials about candidates' views on issues, voting records, and the like may be distributed as long as they comply with IRS rules on neutrality. Candidates may be introduced in a church service or even pray or speak, but not ask for money. Churches may contribute to a legislative, moral, or educational issue campaign, although they may not spend a, quote, substantial part of their activity in so doing, and churches cannot establish a political action a committee or contribute funds to a candidate or political party. So this is his idea of total political freedom.
0: Has anybody told Jesse Jackson this? Yeah. Yes, unless you're of a certain hue. Yes, because that, all our laws are selectively applied. Yes, Jackson violates every one of those, I believe, at one well, time. he right. certainly, it's certainly it's, yes. he certainly collects money in black. Theaters. Absolutely. and that's not the only church groups mm-hmm. that have political rallies and raise money mm-hmm. if you're to the left you have privileges
2: well i think uh, even the christian political uh, christian conservative establishment in washington is realizing that uh, it's just not succeeding it's not getting anything
0: do they show any signs of uh, of wanting to stand up
2: Mm, Not Certainly not in public. Uh, I I don't think that they realize uh, the extent to which theologies and eschatologies have consequences in the political realm, because one of the things that Dugan mentions in his book is that for too long Christians were withdrawn from the world and the political arena, but he appears to have no idea what might cause them. I mean, he's right, but he has no idea what caused that, uh, so I, I see no uh, theological or eschatological awakening. They know, uh, they know they're failing. I mean, at the very least, they can count when they lose votes. They know that uh, when they go to a White House meeting like that, it's simply uh, to, to be endured that uh, they may hand the president some executive order, but the president probably threw it right in the trash after they left. He's certainly not going to
0: sign anything. Well, of course, there's a tremendous anti-Christian barrage in the country. Yes. We've been undergoing this for a long time. And uh, it's my private opinion that the anti-Christians are going to organize the Christians. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh. (laughs) Well, our time is coming close to a conclusion. I want to uh, wind it up by referring to a statement made to Otto and myself a couple of days ago in Seattle, Washington, at the conference there. Monty Hidden said he lent one of these easy chairs, or two or three perhaps, to a friend uh, hoping that uh, he might learn something. And he returned it uh, by saying that uh, Rush Dooney and Scott were two old codgers who weren't going to give an inch to the modern world. Well, I think the statement was wrong on a couple of counts. First of all, in eight days I'll be 75, so I qualify. But uh, Otto is two years and two months younger than I am, so he's a young codger. And as for you, John, you're 50. just a junior codger.
2: Fifty next month.
1: Okay, now... He's wrong when he says we don't give an inch to the modern world. That's not the right way to state it. We're going to take it back for Christ. That's what we've started. And we're going to win because, not because we're that good, but because our God is omnipotent. So, God bless you all. We are part of a great victory. And... You're going to see it take place in Washington over both parties and all the politicians and in London and in Moscow and the world over because we are clearly told that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall (laughs) confess imperative that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's our future. And don't you forget it. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.
0: Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules. Com.